Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support Sly Flourish, help support shows like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. The link to the Patreon is in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive guidelines and tips and tricks and other things, including adventures and all sorts of stuff. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. I have some interesting things to talk about today. Number one, biggest deal, at least for me, is that the Lazy DM's Companion PDF has been released to backers. So if you were a backer of the Lazy DM Companion Kickstarter, which happened last October, the PDF for that has now been delivered. I, I sent out the PDF to all backers through BackerKit, I think Tuesday, and many, many people got it. That includes the... PDF of the Lazy DM's Companion, fully edited with all the maps, all the art, everything is in it. And the map pack and an art pack, a kind of a secret art pack. Yeah, all the art is available in the art pack as well. So you can download both of those. If you are a backer, you can download them directly from BackerKit. You can also, you also get a link to add it to your drive-through RPG library. So that if you like, if you already have a drive-through RPG library and you want it added to that library, there's a link, you click that, it adds it right to your cart for $0, you check out, and it's now added to your library as well. So that is that is really, that is really exciting. Here it is, right here, the Lazy DM's Companion, 64 pages, I think it's 60, 65 page PDF because of the cover, and it's got all this stuff in it, everything is here, all these different tools, so many tools, all clickable. If you want to go to Alien World, you go straight to the Alien World, and just, you know, oh man, I'm so happy. I'm so happy it's out. The feedback has been great. People, people have been really liking it. Look at that God. Look at the God generator. God, right? Great stuff. Just it's packed with tools to help you run 5e games, both to help you come up with ideas for your own adventures, help fill in parts of your own campaign, and give you tools to help streamline playing 5e all in one book, a 64 page, 64 page book, bunch of different maps. Let's take a look at those maps, right? Let's look at those maps. Here, I'm going to do them in reverse order. Here are some general purpose uh, cavern maps and worked stones. So we have natural stone and worked stone maps. You can take these, turn them left and right, flip them horizontally, flip them vertically, use them for lots of different things, seal off different rooms, use them for all different kinds of purposes. The idea behind these was that you can use each of these maps for many different things instead of just one. Here's an underground point crawl map. Uh, by by Chloe Ballard did this excellent beautiful way of showing what a what a really nice point crawl point crawl map can can be like. Hey, Matt Morrow is here. Matt Morrow is just looking at your art. We'll look at more of your art here in a second. Here is a point another point crawl map. This is an overland one. It looks kind of like a geographical map, but actually it's a point crawl map. And if you look, you can see like all the connectors, like streams and roads and valleys and little you know aqueducts and all kinds of things. And hey, look, giant skulls. It's one of my favorite things. This is by Saga McKenzie. This is a this is the tavern map, three layer tavern map that you can uh, use for all kinds of different things. You can just use it as a tavern. You could use it for an infiltration mission. You could just use the basement for some crazy dungeon. You can use it for lots of different things. And here is uh, Saga McKenzie Manor map. So same kind of thing. You could use it. It could be the player's home base. It could be something that they have to go infiltrate. You know, lots of different ways to use it. Maybe they just go to a party. Right? Maybe they're just having a dinner party and you want a map for a dinner party. You got, you got, you got that. The Town Map by Daniel Walthall. 
general purpose town map with lots of interesting little places that you could go explore. And a general, uh, the final general purpose dungeon map that includes both dungeons and, of worked stone and natural stone. Again, you can use it lots of ways. Seal off doors, remove different caverns, use it for stuff like that. And we even use it in an adventure called the Dungeon of Shadows, a two-page adventure that's in the end of the book that shows how you can kind of combine the material together that's in the rest of this book to build an adventure. And here it is. But Matt Morrow's here. Let's look at some of Matt's art. So that is the relic piece, right? Skeletal hand with a weird Cthulhu like idol in it i think that's awesome this is one of my favorites matt did this uh, very early on and i used it for like lots of previews and stuff like that because it's so cool big floating obelisk over a big pit really cool right i love that sort of stuff the defend the you know, protect the village right here's a, like a normal village with a bunch of stakes around the outside neat stuff where else do we have some there's so many great things in here there's a ancient ziggurat this is right for your lost kingdoms if you ever need to fill in old places and you're like i need some background for this well this this is what gives you some background on developing old kingdoms old civilizations and societies that have become lost over time and there's a cool step pyramid i still love this one this is matt i think this is the last piece you did right and and man it's just awesome so great i have to ask matt did were you influenced at all by the movie the ritual because it looks like the ritual if you've seen the rich if you haven't seen the ritual that movie is badass and i highly recommend it so really dig that one Great, great, great stuff, right? Each just trying to grab your, just grab your imagination a bit and run off with it. I like this one, giant sarcophagus, right? Big carved, ancient carved pillars and there's little adventures and you can see, wow, that sarcophagus is really big. What's in there? Is it a stone giant lich? No, you haven't seen it, Matt Morrow. Check out, if you, if you like horror movies, check out the ritual. Here is a ancient elven archway in the wilderness exploration, things you can find in the wilderness, undead templates, monster templates, you want to take your monster manual and multiply it by five to 10 times, two pages that help you do that. This is a, I wonder if anybody knows the secret of this. So we have two pieces of art here. Here is an undead uh, dragonborn knight. And then here is a, uh, a woman paladin with her blade and everything like that. There's a secret, secret bit of lore behind that. I wonder if anybody will recognize a little bit of lore that that's connected to from previous Life Flourish work. Here is your wilderness travel, right? Like old ruined things. There's a look, the big statue of a face out there. Here's an aqueduct for point crawls, right? That, you saw the aqueduct that was inside the Chloe, the, the, the Chloe Ballard map. You know, there is, there is a picture of that actual aqueduct to show how things get connected. We are looking at the Lazy DM's Companion, the final version of the Lazy DM's Companion, my third book of the Return to the Lazy Dungeon Master series. Halloween Grendelbrook Adventure. Close? Not quite. You're close though. One of those words is correct. Well, yeah, one of those words is correct. Uh, we have secrets and clues, cool little scroll, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the Gothic Castle. Is it, give me, give me, give me uh, something that's a mixture of Ravenloft and Castlevania. Bang, there it is. And what else? Check the Zero Session Zero checklist. All the stuff you need to play it. And what else? Tools for improv. There's our, and their introduction. So that there was, <laughs> there is the whole thing in reverse. <laughs> So yeah, so the Lazy Games Companion is released. I'm super excited about it. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy. And it will be available for general sale. Well, there's, there's, so there's a couple things you could do. If you want it right now, you can go to Backer Kit and buy it. And you will get access to it right away. You, you'll get the PDF right away. So if you did not back it, you can pre-order it. You can go to the pre-order page on Backer Kit and order it and you'll get the PDF. Even if you just ordered the PDF, you'll basically get exactly what you wanted. It will be available for general sale on DriveThruRPG 
a week from this Tuesday, I think. I don't, I don't think I'm going to launch it Tuesday. I don't know, maybe. We'll see what I'm doing tomorrow. But I want to do a big, you know, full court press release. So I might do it tomorrow, but I might, it might be a week before. I don't know. Well, let's see. I got to think about that. But yeah, you could pick it up. 10 bucks, 10 bucks for the PDF. Uh, download it. 10 bucks gets you the PDF and the map pack all together. All the, the PDF, art, and map pack all together in one big bundle. And uh, you can get it through Drive. If you order it on Backerkit, you'll still get it on DriveThruRPG. So if you want it right away, if you're watching this video and you're like, I don't want to wait and I want it on DriveThruRPG, you can do it. Go to Backerkit. I think it's like Sly Flourish. Let's see. If you go to Sly Flourish, right? And you click on the Lazy Games Companion. And you can see this pre-order print copies through Backerkit. And you click that. I wonder where that goes. You can click the pre-order one and you don't have to get the $25 one. You can just get the PDF. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. I guess. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Yeah. You can go down here, right? And Lazy Names Companion, $10 PDF and VTT. You click that, you pre-order it. But as soon as you finish your order, it's going to say, here it is, right? And it's going to give you the link to drive through RPG. So you can order it. You can order it directly there. So that's all. That's all great. But it will be up for general sale on drive through RPG either this Tuesday or next Tuesday. We're going to have to, we're going to have to see, well, I'm going to, because I got to do a bunch of stuff ahead of time, but I might have time tomorrow. So we'll find out. So if you like what you just saw, check it out. And that is the Lazy DMs Companion. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Monsters of the Multiverse today because there's lots of interesting news, weird news, strange news, things, and uh, a lot of previews of the monsters that are in Monsters of the Multiverse. So the first thing piece of news that came out is that Monsters of the Multiverse is going to be available on D&D Beyond on 17 May. The Monsters of the Multiverse hardcover book is available as part of a gift pack next week, this, this coming week, right? And that is the only way to get it, is to buy it in a gift pack that includes Tasha's Cauldron of, any, of Everything and Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And if you already have those books, you're like, well, do I have to buy those books again? The answer is you'd have to buy those books again to get Monsters of the Multiverse early. I was going to, and then I saw the previews. I said, you know, I'm not seeing changes that are so substantive to me and so much better to me than what I already have, that it's worth buying two other books that I already have. So I decided against it. And particularly because, and it's weird, Right, and, I, and I, I preach against this and then yet it affected me. Because they're not available in D&D Beyond right away, having the physical book isn't really that useful to me. There's no digital version of those monsters that I can use. And that makes it less useful to me. So I like, I still buy physical books even though I tend to use the digital versions more often. And I plan to do so with Monsters of the Multiverse in May. But I'm not willing to pay the the extra fee of, of having to buy two other books that I already have. And I don't want to give away my old, like one option where I buy the new ones and then I give away my old ones or something. But I have the special edition covers of the old ones. I'm not going to get rid of those either. Those are, you know, they're part of my collection. So I don't, you know, so I just decided against pre-ordering the physical book. And I, and I, you know, I'm more bothered by the fact that they are putting out this gift set like four months, five months early, right? Five months. Like it'd be one thing if it was a month, right? Or it'd be one thing if it was like three weeks at your local game shop, but five months for this book to be out, but you can only get it as part of this one thing, right? That seems like a long time. And that bothers me. It's, it's, I can't think of any good reason 
why that book should only be available in the pack, in the gift pack. That isn't just, we want to siphon money out of people, right? There's a good reason to have a gift pack. And that's the idea that you have the gift box of the core books, which has all three core books in it. And then you have the gift box of this this next set. And and those two are like the advanced D&D set, right? You have your, your, you have your pure core book D&D set, Monster Manual, Dungeon Master's Guide, Player's Handbook. And then you have Xanathar's Guide, Tasha's Guide, and Monsters of the Multiverse. Lots of new monsters, lots of new races, and lots of new class options. And you put those six books together, you have a ton of D&D, right? There's a ton of D&D. And if somebody was just getting started and they're willing to drop the whatever it is, 250 bucks, you know, whatever, plus Amazon, you know, discounts, right? That's a lot of D&D. That's enough D&D to play forever, right? Not forever, but a long time, many, many years with six books. So the, having a gift set really makes sense. Only having Monsters of the Multiverse in the gift set to me is there's no good reason for it other than it's a cash grab, in my opinion. So, so that was, that was an interesting thing. Cause I, I kind of expected that they would be on D and D beyond earlier and no, they're not, they're not going to be on D and D beyond until May, which means even if you own those books, that material is not going to be on beyond until May, right? That's a long time to wait. So then another announcement came out. There were, there were a few different announcements uh, that came out about this, but this is, this came from a discussion on the D and D beyond Twitch show from the developers of D and D beyond. So this is, this is directly from them that, and it was a surprise to me. This goes to show you that, that experts are terrible at predictions. I predicted differently and I was wrong, right? I was dead wrong about this. I expected that they were going to update the races and monsters that had been already published in Volo's Guide and and for Volo's Guide to Monsters and Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. I expected that the races and the monsters in those books would be updated with the new stuff from Morden Kanan or from Monsters in the Multiverse because I'm like, they're, you know, they're the updated ones, right? And the answer is no. They're saying we are not going to update the old stuff. And they're pitching it as the, you don't have to worry about your old stuff being changed underneath you. Okay, fair. But now you're also telling me I have to buy another book to have updated versions of those races and of those monsters, right? And that's, I mean, is it a problem? It is a little, because it's like, is that just a fancy errata, right? That they just basically errata all of the monsters from, from Volo's Guide and Morning Canaan's. And you don't get the errata, right? And I guess not, but it's like, it's not new monsters. These are existing monsters. They're just new stat blocks for those monsters. Do I really have to buy a new book to get updated stat blocks for existing monsters, right? That, that feels a little money grubby too, right? And then the weirder thing, how is that going to be handled in D&D Beyond? Are you going to do a search for your Mind Flayer Lich and have two different versions in your in your listing? And you've got to go figure out which one is which because it's probably not going to be clear. I don't think, I mean, like it, given its existing system, it's it's not going to be clear to me that you will know which one is which. And you have to go look and be like, which version of Orcus am I using? Am I using old Orcus or new Orcus? Right. Am I using old the old, you know, abjure or the new abjure? And that's weird. And then let's like, well, what about adventures, old adventures that had monsters from Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes in it, or or Volo's Guide to Monsters? And 
those adventures reference those monsters, but it's going to reference the old stat block, not the new stat block, unless you bought the monsters of the multiverse, in which case that would have a new stat block, right? That's really confusing. So I don't know how that's going to play out in the interface. Maybe they come up with something crafty or you just say like which one you want. I'm, I'm recognize I'm going to have it, right? I, I have, I have, I forget what it's called. I have a subscription that gives me access to, to everything that comes out in Dini Beyond. So I'm going to get it. So I'll know, right? And I guess like if you were brand new coming in, oh, but it's so complicated because it's like, so now if you buy, so Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes has a lot of interesting lore in it, right? It's got a lot of stuff in that book that beyond the monster stat blocks. And you can go buy that lore and you'd have those monsters, but you'll have the old stat blocks of those monsters, not the new ones. And if you want the new ones, you have to buy Monster of the Multiverse 2 as well. But that's just confusing, right? That just confuses me. So now, and then here's where things get really, you think that's complicated. Now let's talk about character races. So Monsters of the Multiverse has like 30 character races that have been picked up from a lot of material, including both Volo's Guide and Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes and Volo's Guide to Monsters. And your, those books are not going to up, be updated with the new race descriptions. They, you will only have those new race, race stat blocks. Those, they're not stat blocks, right? Race mechanics. You only have those new race mechanics if you buy Monsters of the Multiverse. And then if you have both, now you're going to have two different versions of the same race for a character. And your players will have multiple versions of the same race. There'll be two different lizard folk, two different Yuanti, two different Kenkus, two different kobolds. And in many cases, the, 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 the race descriptions are very different from one another. They have major abilities. And here's even... In many cases, they got nerfed. In many cases, abilities that the old ones had got nerfed, which means in some cases, you'll be buying an updated version of a race that's worse, you know, depending on your point of view. The design is probably better, but that's worse than what was in the original one, right? That's so complicated to me. And I, I just, I don't know. Like, so somebody said, like, why were you surprised? Well, I was surprised because it seems like the cleanest thing to do is to just update the old stuff with the new stuff. But I get that a bunch of people would be pissed off that they like their old stuff and they don't want the new stuff. And now their new stuff, their, now their old stuff gets automatically updated. So the idea of we're not going to replace the old stuff, that makes sense from a, you know, maybe customers are happier that they're not essentially losing what they had. I'm, I'm kind of at the point of view, like, I don't want to have to buy two copies of the, of the evoker. Right. And now I've got two evokers, one old, one new with the same name. Right. Like that. And, and then God help us when we say like, oh, I'm sorry. You can only play the tabaxi from Monsters of the Multiverse. You can't play the tabaxi from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Oh, my God. Right. So headache. Yeah. Pixel, Pixel Ruka says a uh, simple way is to use new rules and the old rules only. Yeah, but I'm not sure that the system will let you be able to exclude new and old. One weird thing about D&D Beyond now is you can turn off source books for your players that are part of your campaign, but that doesn't turn off the options that they can pick when they are making characters and stuff like that. So will they see two tabaxi? Will they see two kenkus? Will they see two kobolds? I don't know. Now, maybe they come up with some crafty way to deal with that, right? We'll find out. And, and maybe they're going to, you know, they got five months to figure this out. So maybe something will come along the line. Then the other one that, that cracked me up 
was when they said, we'll be following instruction from Wizards of the Coast on how to handle content, but I'm assured that they will make an announcement and then we'll take their lead on how to handle it. But I really, one thing that cracked me up, N-World, I think, had a really fun line here. While D&D Beyond is taking its lead from WotC and what to do, apparently WotC asked them to take charge of communicating this to all users. That is such like a fun passive aggression way of like Watsi is making D&D Beyond hold the bag for, for their choices, right? Which kind of cracks me up a little bit. It's like we're going to and it's not it's not very un Watsi like because they've done this with Adventures League for years. Right. For years, Adventurers League and the poor administrators for Adventurers League had to be the front people to communicate with and deal with the repercussions of really bonehead choices that were getting made internal to Watsi for Adventurers League. (laughs) Right. So it is not unlike wizards to make big lofty decisions that then other people have to communicate and suffer with. And this looks like that's what they're doing with D&D Beyond. And it sucks. Right. Like, you know. So, so D&D Beyond is going to have to deal with all of the people that are going to be pissed off one way or the other. My cats are fighting. What are you guys up to? I'm doing a show. Go fight somewhere else. Cats chasing each other around. So D&D Beyond is going to have to do whatever Watsy wants to do with the material that they're bringing in. But D&D Beyond's the one that's going to have to describe it to players and describe it to customers and deal with the repercussions of that, right? And, and this just gets into like, I think D&D Beyond made a raw they have a raw deal with watsi it feels like it right it, they, they get to use the word D in their title that's something that like roll 20 and fantasy grounds don't get to do but roll 20 and fantasy grounds has way more freedom to do what they want to do than DD beyond seems to mostly in the ability to incorporate third-party content DD beyond can't include third-party content and yet roll 20 and and fantasy grounds both can they have all the DD stuff plus they have all the third-party stuff so you know, crazy, right? Yeah, they're Lando. Snark Knight says, they're Lando and Watsi is Vader. You know, pray I don't alter our deal further. That's pretty true, right? I'm, you know, I, this deal's getting worse all the time. Pray I do not alter it further. Bequise says, the paranoid side of my brain is saying this is an opening salvo for Watsi running their own D&D Beyond type product and being unhelpful to D&D Beyond. Possibly, you know, that's a little conspiracy theory, but it's not out of hand, right? Like, does it help Watsi? Like, would Watsi sabotage D&D Beyond to boost their own thing? I don't think so. I think if they were going to do it, they'd just pull the license and say, we're going we're gonna, to, well, new books are only going to be on our own thing. It also might be years before Watsi has something that they can actually put out. So I don't think that they, I don't think they're bothering to like sabotage things now. Yeah. Simpler answer is incompetence. Yeah. I think it was Napoleon, right? So never attribute to enemy action, which can be further attributed to incompetence. And I think that's there. I don't think this is incompetent. I think they had to make a choice. And the choice is, do we update our old material or do we not? And then it seems like Watsi seems more interested in getting money these days. I don't know why. When our sales are slumping, I don't, I don't have any indicator that says it is. But it's possible that, you know, there says why, why we can sell two at twice the price, right? Why not do that? So that's what's going on with Monsters of the Multiverse for the release. Now, the other interesting thing that's going on, though, is Harbinger, who is, goes, Brandis, Brandis, Brandis Sodard got a preview copy. He was one of at least two people I know. I think other people got it as well. Did a really, so he was one of the people who got a preview copy of this expansion gift set. And he very graciously 
took lots of screenshots of stuff, including doing like side-by-side versions of various monsters. So here's the drow matron mother from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Here is the drow matron mother in Monsters of the Multiverse. You can see immediately that it's smaller, but then there's lots of different things. There's lots of different things there. He did this for lots of monsters. And what I recommend you do is you go to uh, Brandis Sodard's page and I guess you have to widen it out. I'll paste, I'll paste this in here. If you get a wide version, you can, you, can, you can go to all of his images and then scroll through his images, right? So you don't have to scroll through, I guess if you go, if you go to media, oh, because I'm not logged in. If you log in, you can scroll through all the images that he posted and see all of the shots that I'm about to show. For, for ease for the show, I stuck them into a big Notion thing. I am not going to pass this Notion page around though because, you know, it contains all these images in it. But I took these right from Brandon, uh, Bradis Sudard's thing. Did he get sued? No, I don't think he got sued. He, I mean, he was, they gave him a preview copy, right? They, they want him, they want him to show this stuff, right? This is how it goes. Newbie DM did the same thing. I think Enrique Bertrand on Newbie DM has a YouTube show where he went through page by page, went through a lot of it too. So no, I don't think there's any issues with this being seen or released because he got a preview copy so he could preview what was going on. So what are some of the interesting things to note here? There's a bunch of them, right? Bunch of monsters that we, we've got. And we're gonna take, I don't think we're gonna go in depth to all of them. But the main, the main philosophy behind the design on this sort of thing was to make sure that monsters acted their challenge rating, even if you ran them in, in different ways or in suboptimal ways, right? A lot of the description from Jeremy Crawford was, the, 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 the description from Jeremy Crawford was, you wanted to ensure that monsters, that you didn't have to play them optimally, that the monster's challenge rating often required that they were played a very particular way in a very particular circumstance. And that's why they were the challenge rating that they were. And they wanted to make sure that the monsters were more universal. They would, they would still fight at that challenge rating. And you're gonna see what that looks like. And the example of what that looks like is if you look at the demon staff here, right? Drow makes two demon staff attacks or one demon staff attack and three tentacle rod attacks, right? Demon staff attack is plus 10 to hit, eight bludgeoning plus 14 psychic damage. So that's, Math is hard, 22 points. And they succeed in DC 19 saving throw, become frightened of the drow. So, you know, that's a fair bit of damage, right? And that's two of those attacks. And then they can make a demon staff attack as a legendary action. So that's five, five attacks at 22 points of damage per attack. 100, that's like 120, is that right? 120 damage, do I have that right? No, like 110, 110 points of damage that it can do in one round, right? But it's challenge rating 20. So I still go like, is that enough? It does a lot of other things, but you can look at it like its basic attack does a fair bit of damage. And that's different than the original Drow Major Mother. Then there's like weird stuff though. This is like the first one I saw and I was like the tentacle rod attack, right? And I guess I, 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 what I hadn't seen originally was it makes one demon staff attack and three tentacle rod attacks, right? Tentacle rod plus nine to hit, one creature, three bludgeoning damage. Not very much damage. If the target is hit three times with a rod on one turn, the target must succeed on a DC 15 constitution saving throw or suffer the following effects for one minute. Speed is halved, disadvantage on deck saves, can't use reactions. Moreover, in each of its turns, it can take either an action or bonus, but not both. So essentially it's a slow, right? Essentially, if you hit it with a rod, it's a slow. It's the three bludgeoning damage that confuses me because that is very little damage, right? That's nine. So that replaces 
a, a damage that is 8 plus 14, what do you say, 22? I keep doing the same math over and again. 22, this takes 22 points and makes it 9. Why not throw some poison damage on there too, right? Just a couple D6 of poison. Seven, 3 plus 7 poison damage would make this 30, which is pretty good because you can't do it as a legendary, and has this kicker, right? So... Yeah, Snark Knight says, "Man, that sounds like a long turn. Maybe, but it's a it's a legendary monster, right? It's 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 you know, Drop Matron Mother is no no joke. So stuff like that. Lots of condign. Oh, this is something that I thought was really good. I really liked is that a lot of monsters that summon things now can do it as a bonus action, which means they can do all the attacks. And by the way, a Glabrazo shows up, right? And now now its challenge rating feels right because it's not the Matron Mother alone. It's a Matron Mother plus a Glabrazo or a Yokelol, right?" Okay, now 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 we got a serious thing. And now I feel like, you know, so it's pretty good. The tentacle rob was a little weak, I felt like to me, but you know, easily fixed. And that was one of the reasons that I decided not to pre-order the book. Or that I did I, I canceled my pre-order. And it was because like I'm gonna modify these things anyway. I'm already modifying mon D monsters all the time in my head. I use I use the dials, right? I've got the, the sly flourish dials of monster difficulty, and I'm tweaking those dials all the time. So if I'm already tweaking by like adding poison damage to the tentacle rod. Well, why am I buying a new one, right? I can just, I'll wait and I'll, I won't buy three books for one. I'll wait until I can buy it normally, which I am going to do. I'm definitely going to buy it when it comes out normally. They packed up spells too. Orcus was one that I asked for. I asked, I asked Brandis. I said, can you show me Orcus, please? I really want to see Orcus. Let's pop this out so we can read it a little bit better. I really wanted to look at Orcus. And Orcus is pretty close to the same other than he now has this necrotic bolts attack, right? which he can do, he can do three necrotic bolt attacks. He can make three Wand of Orcus, Tail, or necrotic bolt attacks. He can beat the hell out of you with a tail, right? And the necrotic bolt is 15 to hit, 29 necrotic damage. All right. So he's got a nice ranged attack now. Other, th other than that, a lot of his abilities are pretty much the same. And, and not, you know, he's pretty solid. I, I, we talked about it in my Discord chat. The Wand of Orcus that hits from those 19, 24 bludgeoning plus 13 necrotic. All right, that's 37 points. So that's not nothing right? That's, that's a fair bit of damage and he can hit you three times with it, right? But thematically, isn't it better if, if it hits you, you drop to zero hit points and maybe he only does one or two of them. What if he did two of those, right? Like that would be scary. Now he's a CR 26, right? When he hits you, all your hit points go away or something like that, right? It feels like you know, like the Wand of Orcus, one of the most powerful artifacts in the multiverse, does 13 necrotic damage, right? It's not quite as bad as the, the the three cold damage darts, but yeah, it's a little low. And and but it's fine, right? It's an easier stat block. I can see it running. It's nice that he's got ranged attacks that he can hurl from far away, right? And you'll notice that a lot of times the modifications of monsters are that adding, giving it a nice beefy ranged attack seems to be the common approach. Well, guess what? You can just do that right here i give you permission from now on add ranged attacks to your monsters i'm gonna have an article on monday about this tomorrow tomorrow there's gonna be a slight flash article about how to add necrotic damage to basically any undead monster but you can really do it for any monster which is like give them take take whatever their melee attack is reflavor a ranged attack that does similar damage you know all done. What else? So that's Orcus. Zariel was pretty much the same. One interesting thing with Zariel is they got rid of her ranged attack. She used to be able to hurl these flame bolts that did like 36 fire damage. And she can't do that anymore. Why did they take her, you know, why did they take that away? And granted, she has teleport as a legendary, so she can move all over the place. 
but she doesn't have an attack action as a legendary action. So she can't teleport one round and then attack a next, which seems weak. I would probably give her a long, you know, again, I'm going to make, you know, and she's CR 26. These guys are huge. They should be pouring out damage. I've now tested a fair bit of high level stuff. And I can tell you, they should do that. Bale, you know, CR 19, right? Bale is a pit fiend, right? A pit fiend with 189 hit points. Pit fiends have 289 hit points. They have way more, right? Now, granted, I think he's got regen, regen 20. Okay, but if it takes cold or radiant damage, you don't. And so, you know, I'd rather just have hit points, right, than, than, than regen. So again, it's like, well, I'll probably just, you know, I'll probably just change things up. Hellish Morningstar. Oh, this is an interesting thing they did as well. All of the demons, the big high level monsters, they do force damage instead of bludgeoning, piercing, or bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing, which A, means it probably gets past your barbarian's rage, you know, and it means it gets past any of the non-magical, any of the limitations on non-magic. You, you'll notice that they don't have the thing that says other oh, weapons account as magical attacks. They don't have that because it's not, it's, it's, you know. It's there. So whatever. Is it a nerf? Uh, Demogorgon looked pretty good. You know, nice small stat block. Seemed pretty good. 28 damage, 28 force damage with a, a tentacle attack. Two tentacle attacks can replace with a use of gaze. And the gazes were okay. They, You know, they're all sort of denial. And, and players are going to hate him because he stuns or confuses, you know, or charms. And those are all denial. And that kind of sucks. And he can hit with a tail for 31 points of damage. So he's, you know, it's pretty tough. I mean, CR 26, 464 hit points. Pretty beefy. I really like the the Melidius. We were talking about this with some friends. I was talking about it with some friends. I did not like the Melidius that was in the original Tomophos. I don't remember what it was like, but I really like this one. It does a lot. And it's got like the equivalent of its Vorpal Axe, right? 35 force damage, uh, demon weapon attack, one snake bite attack, one wolf bite attack, right? 35 damage with the demonic weapon, 16 with the snake plus poison, 25 with the bite. That's a lot of damage. And it can make a demonic weapon attack as a legendary action. So it can hit you a lot. That's four of these, right? 21, fair bit of damage. And if it rolls a 20, it decapitates you and kills you. Why does why does this guy have that and Orcus doesn't, right? Why does the wand not say like on a 19 or 20, it drops you to zero hit points? I don't know. An interesting thing is even though they went through this whole, like we want to make sure to put all the stuff in the stat block that really goes, they still put spells like lightning bolt inside spell casting. So a, Mil a Melidius can still throw lightning bolts around. I don't know why. Not when I'm doing all this other stuff. Um, you know, so so I don't know. But but pretty cool. What else did I want to say about this guy? I, I think he's good. Yeah, CR20. Oh, one thing is I, I was talking with a friend of mine who said like, you know, the art makes him look like a knoll, right? He really doesn't look that. And he's huge, right? He's, he should be much bigger. The picture should be far more scary uh, than, than that. The picture's fine. But boy, you know, give give that dude some you know, bigger shoulders or something. Uh, Fire Elemental Myrmidon, I don't think changed very much. I don't know what that thing is. I'm skipping through some of these. I grabbed them. I want to see, I, I have a Black Abishai because I was curious about the Black Abishai. The Black Abishai was not was not changed. Then this was one that I was very curious about, which are NPCs, right? The, the how, how are they handling NPCs? So here's an Evoker, for example. And a nice abbreviated, like that stat block is small, right? CR9, 121 hit points. That feels about right. Evoker makes three arcane burst attacks. Arcane burst, seven to hit, 25 force damage. So the Evoker is throwing 75 damage, right? That's a lot of damage for this guy to be doing a CR9, right? Seven, you figure about seven damage per challenge rating is like what the baseline is. But then you, and you look at that. So, so here, this is interesting, right? Imagine the linear 
curve here, right? We're going to do some linear regression on today's episode of Lazy DM, the Lazy DM talk show. Linear regression time. And the linear regression tells us that if we look at challenge rating nine and we see it is 75 points of damage. So that's what? Uh, 75 divided by nine, right? That's 8.3. So 8.3 damage per challenge rating for the Evoker Wizard with just his basic attack, their basic attack, right? Keep that in mind. Let's go back to our friend Orcus, right? Where's Orcus? Here's our friend Orcus. Let's open him up again, right? So Orcus is CR 26. So let's take that same 8.3, 26 times 8.3. 215 damage is how much damage Orcus should be doing per round to be doing an equal amount of damage as the Evoker. And I don't think he can get there. Right? So like none of his abilities here do damage. He does three Wand of Orcus attacks, which is 24, that's 27, 37 times three, right? 37 times three. What is it? So 215 is what we're trying to get to. 37 times three. Uh, 111 points on his turn, right? He's bonking you in the head with his with this thing. Then he can make three tail or necrotic bolt attacks. Let's pick whichever the higher. So the, the tail is uh, the tail is 21 plus nine, right? So that's 30 times three, 90. So what do we say? What's the total there? Somebody do the math for me. Basically, I don't, I don't think, I think it's, it's actually not terrible. It's pretty close, right? But it's still low. And he's CR 26. I would, I would have it ramp up rather than ramp, than, than tail off. But I guess it's actually pretty close. So I, I am not going to complain too much. You know, does he, does he quite get to evoker level damage? And I don't know that he's quite there. So that's pretty cool. 25 points of damage, three arcane burst attacks, sculpted explosion. You can blow up an area. It's basically 40 damage, 40 damage, and then, you know, and half damage on a success. It's a 20 foot radius, so it's fireball sized. Yeah, LARP strong. I was adding three wand and three tails. Yeah, if you add those together, how many, what does it end up, and how close is it to the 8.3 times whatever? Uh, I was counting legendary actions as well, which is how you get to about 200. 200 some but that's a pretty good spell so i like this guy a lot right the evoker wizard feels good what's interesting and I, i've talked about this before what i find interesting is players can't learn sculpted sculpted explosion as a spell it's not a spell right so you have an npc wizard evoker you have players who play evoker wizards and they're not the same at all like this guy's far fewer spells that he can cast than the player does which is fine. But he has two abilities, Arcane Burst and Sculpted Explosion, which players cannot get. They don't count as spells. They can't be countered with Counterspell, right? And they're not in their spell book they're, because they're not spells. That That is really interesting. The other thing is like they don't have shield, right? Like what wizard doesn't have shield? And this guy doesn't, right? Not only doesn't have shield, doesn't have a way to not, to, to include it, right? So... You know, Mage Hand, right? Ice Storm, Lightning Bolt. And then why Why are you putting Ice Storm and Lightning Bolt in the stat block when you have Sculpted Explosion, which is better, right? Like, it, it's weird, but okay. Like, I, like, when you run it at the table, it probably runs fine. It's just this question of like, you know, the Evoker Wizard can do an Acid Blast, right? Fire, Cold, Lightning, or Thunder. So I guess like he could, yeah. And so you could say, well... He can do a cold version of a fireball that does 40 damage instead of, and does D8s instead of D6s. So, you know, weird. 
but okay, but, but powerful wise good. And they're all sort of like this wise, but you can see many times what they did is they gave this thing. So arcane burst, right? Arcane burst plus seven to hit 20 points of radiant damage. Arcane burst plus six to hit 19 points of psychic damage. It's the same ability name, arcane burst here, arcane, that's confusing, isn't it? So you have an ability that two different creatures have similar divine wizard and enchanter wizard. They both, they both have the same ability name but they do different things. They're both, their attack bonus is different and the damage is different. That's interesting. I guess it's because Arcane Burst is sort of like having an attack. It's sort of like saying longsword attack, which could be very different between different creatures. So somebody asked about the Conjurer. There is a Conjurer, which can summon an elemental as a bonus action. I mean, elementals are CR5. So you have a CR6 guy bringing in a CR5 guy as a bonus action. That's meaty, right? G Blaster says that's OP. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, you know, hard to say because it doesn't have shield. <laughs> so you're going to take it down quick. Why don't they have Misty Step? The benign transportation teleports along with equipment is wearing 30 feet to an unoccupied square. It could do as a bonus action. If it said chooses space within range, willing small, they can both teleport swapping places. So it has a, it says, why not Misty Step? This one has a fake Misty Step, a different Misty Step, right? Which is weird. Uh, and then Fireball is in the Conjuration Spellcaster's ability. So it can still do a damage spell. What's up with that, right? Necromancer's interesting. Summons undead. It can summon five zombies or skeletons as a bonus action. That's pretty cool. All right, I'll do so once a day. Hey, again, Arcane Bursts, plus seven, 25 necrotic damage. So they, they did these like, and think about it, like you can basically take the formula for this Arcane Burst thing and just add it to any monster, any spellcaster you want, right? And if you if you want to do a Mordenkainen or a, monsters of the multiverse kind of monster you just add that on there so interesting stuff i think i have bail in here twice oh yeah it looks like i repeated some some dudes anybody else that we wanted to look at warlords the winter so my favorite the winter eladrin right i had to give crap to jeremy crawford when when i was talking to him on a show i did a long time ago about the sad the sad bow of the winter eladrin and now it's not a sad bow anymore right seven plus 13 cold damage yeah he added cold damage to the necrotic to the thing i'm gonna make two of those so it's doing a fair bit cr10 you know, yeah, that's fine. Face step, sure. Frigid rebuke, you know, fine. So Winter Eladrin's better. You know, I'll give it, that, that, that definitely works. Oh, here's what I really liked. I'm going to end on a high note, which is the Deathlocks. I really did not like the Deathlocks that were in Mordenkainen's, right? Deathlocks are like undead spellcasters, low-level undead spellcasters, sort of lich light. And I like those. I want undead spellcasters. They're pretty cool. But they were warlocks and they had a bunch of warlock abilities that like, I didn't know how I was going to run that in a game. And now they're nice and clean, right? Now it's like, I've got my deathlock, multi, two deathly claw, grave bolt, deathly claws, nine necrotic, grave bolt, plus five to hit, 14 necrotic, 28, 28 necrotic damage at CR4. What's that? 28 divided four. Okay, that's perfect, right? CR, that's seven damage per, seven damage per CR right? That fits really nicely. And it's got some other spells it can do like invisibility and spider climb and hunger of Hadar and whatever, dispel magic. So it's got some stuff out, but I like that now it's got like a nice clean, if you're going to use a bunch of great death locks, right? If you're going to have five death locks, they're easy to fire, right? They're easy to work. So I like that stuff. I don't know why there's a death lock at CR4 and a death lock white. I don't know why we have two because they're both almost immediately the same CR. They both have this like grave bolt attack. This one does less, but it, okay, it's a lower CR, so it should, right? This does 24 points, 24 divided by three. 
eight. So it's like the Deathlock White actually hits a little harder for its challenge rating. And it's got life drain. So I guess because it's a white, but there's the stat blocks are so similar. I don't get it. And then you have a mastermind, right? And the mastermind is a bigger dude. CR eight, 110. I like this, right? Really good. Turn resistance. Two Deathlock Grave Bolt, but their Grave Bolts do six, only two, 13 necrotic damage. If it's large, succeeded on a saving throw, become restrained by shadowy tendril wrapped around it. So it does restraining and it's it, but it only does 26. Is that, that that's way low, right? Right, 26 divided by eight. That's 3.25. Why is it doing so little? Am I missing something? Somebody help me out here. What am I missing? You know, and it doesn't have a lot of crazy good spells. Let's end on a high note. Yeah, I, I thought. Well, I really like the these guys. So the, the Deathlock Mastermind is, because, I guess, because of the control, right? It can hit two guys and restrain them with strength saving throws. And then other people can beat the crap out of them. I don't think that makes up for the fact that does so little damage. And if it were me, we would do eight times seven divided by two. Uh, I do 18 points of damage on those attacks instead of 13, right? Is that right? Oh, no, because it only does two. 28 points, right? So I do eight, uh, 68 would be better. Double that, right? Double the amount of damage that they're doing there. And you're, and you're pretty good. 68 or 86 would be good on each of those because it's, it's a little low. So, and that's my point, right? I'm, I look at these and I'm, I'm going to have to tweet. I like the Deathlock. The Deathlock's great. I, Deathlock White is okay, but I don't know why I have both. And the Deathlock Mastermind does too little damage. So, or for me, right? And this is all... Keep in mind all of this, everything I've just been complaining about for the last, whatever, 35 minutes, ending on one third of a high note. There you go. One third. I really like this guy. Deathlock is really cool. This is just my opinion, man. This is just like my opinion, right? Like everybody's got different things that they want from monsters. And this is kind of more to the point, which is like, we're going to, we're going to be swimming in monsters here pretty soon. We're going to have monsters of the multiverse, which has 300 some monsters. My understanding is MCDM. Matt Colville's company is coming out with a Kickstarter for a new monster book soon, right? And they've been testing the hell out of monsters. We have Toma Beast 3, the, th the fourth monster book coming out for Kobold Press. And then a whole ton of monster books that already exist. We have tons of monsters coming in, right? Tons of them coming in from all kinds of different places. You know, tons of monsters coming in from all sorts of different places and all of them with different design philosophies, which is really interesting, right? Sometimes more complicated. One thing I've seen a lot from third-party publishers, not so much Cobalt Press. I have seen it with MCDM's monsters and I'm seeing it with the Level Up 5e Monsters Menagerie, which I'm probably going to do a full review of next, next week, which I think I have. Let's see. Let's take a look. Uh, yeah, this is the, uh, here's an example of the Lich, right? From the Monsters Menagerie. And it, it's a good solid, it's a good solid monster, but look, it's two pages long. That's a big stat block, right? And granted, it's a lich. It's like as powerful, you know, it's as strong a monster as you can get. I'm going to take a deeper look at this. But one thing that I think is pretty clear to me about the design philosophy of the Monsters Menagerie, the level up 5e Monsters Menagerie, is if you want deeper, richer, more tactically relevant monsters with lots of different options, here's your, here's your go-to. What I respect about the way Wizards is going is they say, we want to keep monsters simple and straightforward and easy to use and still have them attack at their challenge rating. The only problem is I don't think they all do, right? I don't think they all meet that. I don't th think they meet that goal. 
So LARP Strong says MCDM does a butt ton of playtesting. Does Cobra Press. I know Cobra Press playtests. I don't know how extensive. And when you have 300 monsters, I don't know how well tested all of them are. I know MCDM does. They have a full-time playtest coordinator on staff. That Their whole job is playtest coordinating. And they have a huge amount of people that, that do that playtesting. So they got lots and lots of stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited about MCDMs. But it would not surprise me, knowing Matt Colville's d- desires and designs for 5e, that they'll be pretty crunchy too. Right. So if you want monsters with lots of stuff, you know, that's great. I, I kind of want simpler things. Right. And I like the simplicity of monsters of the multiverse. You know, I wish the math, I wish the math held up a little bit better. So anyway, that's our monster talk for today. Let's do some Patreon questions. Oh, I have 10 minutes left, man. I burned the day talking about monsters. So let's talk about, let's do some Patreon questions. Try to hammer through a few of these. Josh G from Patreon says, there's a lot of good advice out there about running successful scenes or encounters, but I have more trouble with the transitions between scenes. (laughs) There are a lot of good advice out there about running successful scenes or encounters, but I have more trouble with the transition between scenes. How do we find the right resolution for transitions for them to feel natural? Narrating a whole transition from scene to scene can sometimes feel a bit abrupt and rob the game of potential gameplay but allowing the characters to enact with each tiny step on the way can bog things down. It's a good question. And I hate to say it. I hate to just be flippant. It's, it's the kind of thing you got to get a feel for, right? This gets into the whole concept of pacing in games. And this Monty Cook from, from you know, for, former D&D designer Monty Cook and now owner of Monty Cook MCG, uh, and MCG, Monty Cook Games, right? Creator of Numenera talks about the importance of pacing in RPGs as the, maybe the most important skill you can have as a, as, a, as a GM and as a DM. And part of that is knowing when to let things take some time and when to speed things up. When is it getting tiring and when is it time to increase it? This is a little bit about beats, right? But not, this isn't just about beats. This is about, you know, time frames, stretching and condensing time frame stuff. And the, and the hard part is, your player, the easy way is to say, well, you know, are your players engaged? If they are, then the time is right. If they are bored, then you need to condense things. If they are too stressed out and too frantic and, and they feel they keep saying, like, wait a minute, I want to do this other thing, then you want to you want to stretch things out. But what if you have players that want different things? And some players are bored off their mind and other players think it's taking it's not long enough, right? Well, that's where you gotta really balance things, and that's hard. One thing I would advise, and I've talked about this before a lot, and I did a video on this recently, is the idea of thinking, don't, you know, instead of, and this is just, again, my, my, my thought on it, is I try to think less about blocking scenes, right? Instead of saying like scene, 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 I just look at the whole situation, right? And, I, and, and one scene flows right into the next. I don't really, I don't really have like a, a, a block between one scene and another. There's not a big cut. Sometimes there is. Right. And sometimes it's like a travel montage or whatever. But a lot of the times I'm just letting the story play out and then I will stretch it or condense it as I need in order to, to you know, and, and part of it is like, how do I feel? Am I bored? If I'm bored, I'm going to speed things up. If I'm excited and I think that I might, I might stretch things out and hopefully my pacing is desirable to the players as well. But yeah, that idea of thinking less about trying to block things into encounters and into scenes and more about stretching them out, I think can, can make a big difference. So that's my thought. Wayne S. I would like to see some discussion about how you would build the World Without Heroes teaser you posted. How would you combine the various published modules? So on Sly Flourish, I wrote an article called A World Without Heroes. It is a 1 to 20 campaign outline. And the theory of it was imagine that 
all of the scenarios that are in the hardcover adventures that Wizards has published all happened. And the players weren't there. The characters weren't there to stop it. So Tiamat rises, right? The cult of Tiamat rises Tiamat up. The demon lords are ruling the Underdark because nobody stopped them. The, the elemental evil cults fought each other to death, but now one cult remains. And we're going to say it was the cult of eternal flame that won. And now Imix is sitting on a molten throne in the middle of the Deseret Valley. Asarak birthed his, uh, by the way, this is spoiling every one of the adventures, by the way, sorry. Asarak birthed a, Darth, a dark god down in Chult. And that god is now just feeding on the life of everything around it. And there's now a, a big hellhole where Elturel was. And now Baldur's Gate is on the way. Maybe even Baldur's Gate is gone, but Baldur's Gate is now ruled over by devils or their thralls. And the Frost Maiden has completely taken over and frozen everything in the north and is working her way south. So imagine all of those things happened. And now you have this like Armageddon world with all of these different things and the characters are involved. And it's like, how do you fix this mess? Right? So the, the question was, how would you do it? So I, I, I don't want to say like, read the article, but like, you know, my, my big thing is like, you, you know, decide first. And probably what I would do is during a session zero, I would say, work with, tell the players what's going on, right? All of these things are like the truths that they already know have happened because they have happened. And then figure out where they're going to start, right? Figure out which one of these places they want to start in. Mirabar, Waterdeep, Baldur's Gate, Nyanzaru, Lingdenstone. And, and then build adventures from there that are sort of built out of those things that happened, right? And so depending on which location they choose is which one of those major fronts they're going to start facing right away. If they're in Waterdeep, they're going to have to deal with like Tiamat, right? Because her ziggurat is floating right above the city. And, and now it's filled with cultists of their dragon, right? All of the masked lords are actually dragon cultists, right? So, and then just build it out from there. But the idea for this, the idea for this seed is not to give you a full campaign. It's to give you ideas. And then you build your adventure from there. I don't think I'm answering your question, but you know, the way I would, I would, you know, I wouldn't combine the adventures. I would just use material that's, that are in those adventures to come up with my own campaign based on the idea of what if those adventures had all occurred. So William, uh, Wayne, I hope that helps answer your question a little bit. William D, do you use callbacks in your games like they do in movies and books? If so, what are some good ways to build in callbacks that are memorable? Something I'm guilty of is turning a random NPC that might be mistreated by the players into a bad guy later on, not the big bad. So I'm not, sh I'm not sure that I understand what a callback is in this question. And I'm, I'm, I might be misinterpreting and saying flashback. If you mean callback as in like bringing something that happened in a previous game into the game now, I think that's are great, right? And your idea of like NPCs that, the, that were mistreated by the players come back as a villain, I don't know why that's wrong, right? I think that that's cool. Think about Captain America Civil War, right? And I, one of the things I love about Civil War is that the main villain is just a normal dude, right? He's a normal dude that had something terrible happen to him because of, and, and he blames the Avengers for it. And he's figuring out how to deconstruct the Avengers, right? And how, how would a guy with no superpowers take down the Avengers, right? That is a really cool, you know, that is a really cool idea. And, and the idea of like an NPC that the characters treated badly, who then says like, I'm going to take, and one of the campaigns I always wanted to do is like, imagine you had a demon prince, an ancient dragon, a lich, and somebody else that had all been sort of awakened and set upon the world by like a commoner, right? The commoner figured out how to work these groups just because he wanted to, right? So I think that, that, that that's really cool. I think callbacks are great and players love callbacks. They love to hear about NPCs that they've seen before. Good ways to build them in 
I mean, keeping track of the NPCs is a great way to do it, right? If you can, if you can take a look at your NPCs and review them and say, are there any NPCs I want to bring back, right? Remembering which NPCs the characters cared about, the players cared about. You know, I could, I think it'd be good. Everyone brings up Thumper. Everyone remembers Thumper. So yeah, so I think that there's, I think it's a great idea. And I think the best way to do it is like keep, you know, one, you'll notice I don't have a database for secrets, right? I only have the 10 secrets for any game and I come up with the 10 new ones and everybody, I get people all the time to talk to me about, oh, I like to keep track of all my secrets and a big thing. Okay. I mean, if it works for you, great. I find that I really need to like flush the cash every week and come up with new secrets. Although you've seen me cheat on that, but I don't have like a big database. I'll have 300 secrets and with like, you know, 72 of them checked off and 192 that I have not. So, but I do keep track of NPCs, right? I have a big NPC section that has a list of all NPCs. I find that really useful. And that's because I can use that to do the callbacks that you're talking about. Paul B uh, says, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the benefits and problems associated with D&D canon. When does it help and why? And where is it problematic? I've heard your thoughts across multiple streams on D&D being our game, but I wonder if there's a way to pull all those points together that might be a reference point for the community. Yeah, so... Canon serves, you know, Canon is good and bad, right? Canon is great for establishing a baseline that the players and the DM all recognize and understand and might recognize and understand pretty thoroughly before you run a game. If you have players who know about the Forgotten Realms and you're running a game in the Forgotten Realms, you don't have to explain a lot of stuff about the Forgotten Realms. You can talk about Waterdeep and everyone knows what you're talking about. You can talk about Baldur's Gate and everyone knows what you're talking about, right? That really helps. And setting that baseline expectation is really good. If you happen to be playing in organized play, it, that helps too, because now your canon is a, is a set baseline that helps you go from game to game and still have a set world that you're able to, to kind of like live in and that your character live in. So, so that, that works really well. Canon can be problematic if the players are hanging on to parts of it too tightly that the DM doesn't want to go with. And this could be like, if you have an ancient civil, let's say you do a big Netherese thing and you as the DM have ideas about the Netherese that doesn't fit the storyline that about the Netherese in, in other books and the players have read that and they know it and they're like, why are your Netherese different than the actual Netherese, right? That that can cause problems. It, a lot of times I've heard DMs who have trouble when their players know more about the world than they do. And there's ways to deal with that, but it is a hard situation, right? The ways to deal with it is to try to bring them in and let them help you make the world real because they've got knowledge that can help you. It's sort of that expanding beyond their character and talking about the world. Ask them about the Netherese, right? A trick a trick you can pull is when they say, oh, that sounds like the Netherese. And you say, ah, what do you know about the Netherese? And they might say, well, as a player, I know something, but as a character, I might not know it. And I said, well, as a player, go ahead and describe as a player what you know, and, and we'll come up with a reason why your character knows this, right? And let the player, and then you learn what the player knows. And now you know, and then you can use that to inform your stuff, right? So so there's there's tricky bits with with that, but there are ways to deal with it. I'm, I'm lucky that generally speaking, my players know a lot about the Forgotten Realms. Occasionally, I've definitely had players who know more about it than I do. I'm sure I do. Man, they're just nice. My players probably know way more about it than I do, and they're just nice, and they don't they don't hurt me or yell at me when I do when when I stray from canon. But then the other thing is, once it hits your table, now it's your canon. So like the things, the events that have happened in previous hardcover adventures, in my version of the Forgotten Realms, are my canon, my table's canon. And if I have something that shows up, the events from 
Tyranny of Dragons took place already. The events from Frostmaiden took place. The events from Descent and Avernus have taken place. All of that stuff has taken place so that when there's a new, when new people come in, I have my version of the realms that has been modified by all of the groups and all of the different campaigns that I've run in previous sessions. So, you know, it, so it's a good, it's the main thing is that Canon is really good to give a baseline expectation for everybody at the table where you don't have to explain a lot of stuff. And the bad thing is that some players might be hanging on to parts of it that aren't Canon in your game. I hope that explains your question. As a Lord says, do you have place, do you have places where to get bite-sized lore or inspiration for D and D sessions? Something like a one page, one paragraph or, or page for a fantastic locale, monument, quest hook, NPC, or other stuff you want to use. The tables on your website and in your books are already a great resource, but what if I want more? Have I told you about a fine book known as the Lazy DM's Companion? You already mentioned my books, but I'm just in case you are not aware of this one. This one answers all that stuff that you mentioned. Lots and lots and lots of generators for building out, for, for choosing that, that kind of stuff. So my first recommendation is check out the lazy DMs, the lazy DMs companion, the, but, but you say that, but you know, what if you want more than my books? What else do you have? There's, so there's, there's a couple of, there's a couple of things. One is I really like to get it from uh, source material, the campaign material. I, I think that the sword coast adventures guide is a highly underrated book. I don't think people really understand what it is. The Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide is a player book. It is a book for players that they can that lets them dive in. We were just talking about canon. It's a great way for them to understand what the Forgotten Realms is like because everything that's written in there, everything that's written in that book is is player centric. It's not filled with spoilers, right? But it's also a great DM book because it's got lots of what you're talking about, bite-sized bits of lore that you can read about places, right? And read about like the Warlock's Crypt, right? The Warlock's Crypt on the Sword Coast, really evocative location. One paragraph of text, really evocative location, right? The Eberron on Sourcebook, fantastic place if, you, if you're gonna run an Eberron. This is one of the advantages of running in a published campaign setting is if you want bite-sized lore and inspiration, there's tons of it if you're willing to play in a published campaign setting, right? Midgard, you know, Midgard, Tolis. There's, there's fantastic campaign source books out there that you can siphon for lots of bite-sized lore and inspiration, which you don't have if you're running your own campaign world, which is most, most people, about half, right? If you're running your own campaign world, you can still steal that stuff if you're willing to, right? There's a bit of the not invented here problem. Like, oh, I, I like that, but that's not, I didn't come up with that, so it's not real, right? You can still steal stuff and drop it right into your game when you, when you like it. So one of the advantages of, 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 of campaign worlds, like Wild Mount, right? The, the new Tal'Darai book I just ordered, I just ordered a couple days ago, right? Like, even if I don't plan on playing in those worlds, I bet I can take a lot of stuff from it. And I bet I can get a lot of inspiration for things that I would put in my game. So my, my, other than the Lazy DM's Companion, right? Which is my book. And you said you want more beyond my book. I would go for campaign source books. I think they're great sources of inspiration. My friends... That is it for today's Lazy D&D Talk Show. I want to thank you all much for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, picking up any of my books, or subscribing to my videos on YouTube. For those on Twitch, please hang around. We are going to talk about Blades in the Dark uh, in just a few minutes here. For the rest, thank you very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.